Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. Well, happy Father's Day. Make sure you um, make sure you really honor your dad today, okay? Do something kind and generous and compassionate for your dad. You might say, Justin, my dad's kind of a jerk. Well, honor him anyways. All right? Sound good? Sound good. I mean, because listen, you don't honor your parents because they're awesome. You honor your parents because God made them your parents. And so honor your, honor your, uh, your dad today. Be a good thing to do. So uh, we're starting a series. If you're new here, my name's Justin. Welcome. And uh, we're starting a new series today called Poets and Prophets. And I thought I would start with some of, um, some of the great poetry, the great American poetry that we get to experience. This is one of the most brilliant thinkers and uh, most profound minds, one of the great poets um, of the last real, really, of all time, said this. <clears throat> said, General Clay to General Gore, Oh, must we fight this silly war? To kill and die is such a bore. I quite agree, said General Gore. Said General Gore to General Clay, We could go to the beach today and have some ice cream on the way. A grand idea, said General Clay. Said General Clay to General Gore, We'll build sandcastles on the shore. Said General Gore, We'll splash and play. Let's leave right now, said General Clay. Said General Gore to General Clay, But what if the sea is closed today? And what if the sand's been blown away? A dreadful thought, said General Clay. Said General Gore to General Clay, I've always feared the ocean spray. And we may drown. It's true, we may. It chills my blood, said General Clay. Said General Clay to General Gore, my bathing suit is slightly tore. We'd better on with our war. I quite agree, said General Gore. Then General Clay charged General Gore as bullets flew and cannons roared. And now, alas, there is no more of General Clay and General Gore. That was one of my favorites growing up. That's uh, Shel Silverstein. Come on, Shel Silverstein fans. One, awesome, great. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, you know, one of the great poets, I mean, just obviously write some kids' poetry. Mom dropped off at my house um, my collection of poems from my younger days. Here it is. Um, thanks, Mom. Uh, and uh, only one that claps. And so uh, I, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd read you guys a, uh, a little, piece, uh, <clears throat> that, little piece that I wrote. It's called The Four Seasons. Look out. There it goes. Where did winter go? It took off. Thank God. But here comes spring. I can almost hear the bluebird Brilliant, I know. But here's summer. I hope it's not cool, but who really cares? Let's swim in my pool. Now it's fall. Let's play in the leaves or go to the mall. It's going so fast. What can we do? Let's sit down and enjoy. We'll have some fun too. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, it's, it's um, you know, that'll be on display later in the museum and it's great. So, you know, um, you know the thing is though, as you get older... Poetry takes on more substantive meaning and deals with bigger issues, right? And so, you know, we start off and it's rhymes and it's poems and I, I really enjoy that stuff. I've always really enjoyed, you know, uh, poetry and writing and those type of things. But, but as you get older, you know, the topics become more significant, the ideas get bigger and, um, and there's so much that can be put into the nuance of poems and songs and, uh, and poetic discussion or, or creation or art in, in general you know, uh, Maya Angelou was saying a whole lot more than just a statement about birds when she said, the caged bird sings with fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And you know, for generations, um, people have taken poetry and picked up an instrument and combined those two things 
in music. And so some of the greatest poem, uh, poems and poets are musicians. And, you know, uh, Paul McCartney, when the night is cloudy and there's still a light that shines on me, shine until tomorrow, let it be, yeah. And for those of you that are under 30 um, and you don't know who that is, um, you can look at, uh, you know, the words of Coldplay when he says, light will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you. Yeah, and so what's he wrestling with there? He's wrestling with a whole lot more than just a catchy tune. He's trying to embody in his words something really specific and uh, he's battling with big ideas in poetry, in song. And so it was Beethoven that said, music is the mediator between the spiritual and the sensual life. And that's very true. There's this mediator. And so often we find language for something in song. There's some things that can only be sung. Is that not true? There's some things that you can only articulate through an artistic expression. There's some things that just cannot be embodied in words. And the scripture here is full of historical accounts. We've studied some of those. It's full of genealogies and prophecies, laws and eyewitness accounts. It's full of letters to churches And we've studied some of those, just finished that series in Colossians. And it's important to systematically understand the essence and the nuance of Scripture and all the different pieces of the puzzle. But pressed right in, nestled right in to the center of Scripture is this massive collection of poems and songs. And we call it the Psalms. And uh, it's critical to understand that God is not just the inventor, he's not just the statistician, he's not just the historian, he's not just the judge, but God is also the great sculptor, the great poet, the great songwriter. And we have a God that if you're going to interact with him rightly, even if you're one of those mathematicians, statisticians, I love to keep everything organized and I fold my underwear and iron it, you know. I know there's somebody in the room. Even if that's you, you can come over and iron my clothes if you want. That'd be great. But uh, even if that's you, you know, and, and you're so organized and so clean and so set up and, and all that, it's important for you to realize that unless you begin to open up to this artistic reality of who God is, there are certain aspects of him that you just can't get. Some things are just not understood except for this part of our humanity. And it's critical for us as a body and as a people to be in tune, yes, with the systematic study of the scripture and the importance of the historical account, and also to be in tune with the God who is romantic, with the God who articulates himself in incredibly artistic ways. It's the God who says, I love you, through a long, specific, nuanced story of putting on flesh, coming, it's the most incredible story the human race has ever heard, coming in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, and of all the places he could be born, born in a barn, in a manger with animals, living this perfect life, and then dying with such style as no one would have ever anticipated or expected, the criminal's death on a cross, having hardly become internationally known. Jesus at 33, hanging on a cross with crowns, the same crowns. We're working on a song right now. We, we sang a new song that's one of our songs. I hope you guys liked it. Even if you didn't, I think Jesus enjoyed it. It was that one. With all I am, with all I have, I found myself lost in your eyes. You guys remember that one? Half of you weren't in the room yet. Yeah, that's, so that's a new one that we, uh, that we have been working on. But we're working on another one that it, it starts with. It says, you took the thorns of Adam, you wrapped them around your head, and you wore them as a crown. What a story. What a story that God has written in history just to say one simple phrase, I love you, I love you. But the God that we serve, the God that we follow has this sense about him that he chooses to say it so emphatically. 
You know, John Calvin said that the Psalms, that you may know who he is, one of the great theologians of the last thousand years, really. John Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. An anatomy of all parts of the soul. So you begin to read the Psalms and you find love and sorrow, regret, fear, loneliness, you know, joy. All these different emotions that the Psalms embody. And the Psalms' goal, in one sense, is to awaken the affections of the reader or the singer so that they can begin to interact and experience God in the significant way that the writer intended to interact with God on this soul level, to awaken that part of you. And it's essential to really understand the human experience and interaction with God to interact with Jesus this way. And so it's not, it is great poetry. It's some of the greatest poetry that, um, you know, I would argue the greatest poetry ever written. But it's not just great poetry. When you start to study the Psalms, you find that there's something more there. That God, in his incredible style, took this poetry and he He breathed on it. And so you see that the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. That the New Testament constantly refers to the Psalms as divinely inspired scripture. So these songs are not just songs written by men interacting with God. They're songs written by men interacting with God, inspired by God, with the very breath of God. And woven into the fabric of these songs is what C.S. Lewis calls second meanings. Second meanings, prophetic windows into a coming future age. In other words, these poets were not just poets They were also prophets, and these prophets spoke of a day to come, oftentimes about the coming day of the Messiah, but even about the end of the age. And so we see in these words this prophetic, poetic description of who God is. And so when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, if you know your Bible stories, you know that he's hanging on the cross and he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were a good Jew and you were listening to that and watching that scene happen, unfold on Golgotha, you would say, wow, hey, that guy on the cross just quoted Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts with that word, those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He just quoted Psalm 22, not realizing that the psalmist was actually quoting him. That it was the psalmist who saw in the prophetic lens and quoted Jesus 2,000 years before he said it. This is the beauty of the psalms and so we're going to begin our journey we're going to take a few weeks and walk through a number of different psalms and begin to interact with god in a deeper level in this way but we're going to begin our journey in psalm 27 so if you have a bible you can go there if not it'll be on the screen i'm going to read the whole psalm psalm 27 we'll start here you ready all right here we go psalm 27 a psalm of david the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Like the baby. Be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. 
Turn not your, turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O oh, God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of God. Thank you for these words specifically. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this auditorium right now. I know that you're already here, that you're our invited guest, that we sang songs to you, that we honored you and we worshiped you. We invite your presence and your power right here, right now, God. Lord, I pray that you would custom fit these words, the words of God, to every human heart and every situation and circumstance this morning. Holy Spirit, I welcome you right now. And we just say together, thank you for being here. Would you reveal yourself in a profound way? Father, for the person that doesn't know you, that's far from you, I pray in Jesus' name that the truth and the light of your love and grace would break through their circumstance. And for the individual that's a follower of you, all this family of believers that gather every week to honor you and worship you, I pray in Jesus' name that you pull us into who you are and you unravel for us the things that would keep us from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever battled irrational fear before? You don't have to like raise your hand and be like, yes, I battled irrational, but have you ever, think about it, have you ever battled irrational fear, just fear that doesn't make any sense? You know, I'm afraid that somebody's gonna break into my house. I'm afraid that, you know, I'm gonna die of an illness that I don't have and no, there's no evidence that I have it, but I'm afraid I'm gonna die. I'm afraid that this person's gonna get hurt or this person's gonna get raped or this person is gonna be violated or I'm afraid of this financial thing that is not gonna happen, but I'm so afraid and I'm always trying to deal with my fears. Have you ever battled with irrational fear before. Just um, this weekend, me and my dad and my son went camping. We went camping for two days, and it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. And so yesterday, we're about to get into a canoe, okay? So here we are, three of us, about to get into a canoe, having some great man time. It's really fun. We're going to go in a canoe, which is awesome because I'm not very balanced uh, gifted, you know, so I tip, fall, everything. But anyways, I did not fall off the canoe. So we're about to get in the canoe, and as we're preparing the canoe to get into the water, this little bug flies into my ear. Has that ever happened to you before? Not like it's happened to me. This bug flew into my ear, and he was just the right size that he lodged himself somewhere between my ear and my brain. And he is freaking out about the fact that he's stuck in there. And so he's like... And I'm like, oh, there's something in my ear. And so, of course, I do the, come on, get out of there, you weird little bug. And I'm like, you know, get out of there. And he's not coming out. And all of a sudden, he's like pressing in. You know what I mean? Pressing in. Well, you probably don't know what I mean. He's pressing in, okay? He's trying to like get into my brain. And he's, he, I can't see him. You know, they come over. They look at my ear. He's in there so far that he is unseeable. And he's trapped in the cavity of my ear. And so I'm like, okay, it's all right. Hey, Dad, just watch, Gabe. I'm going to go to the bathroom. And so I go over to the bathroom, you know, and here I am at the campground bathroom, you know, splashing water in my ear and, you know, kind of like flicking my ear and, you know, doing this. And he's just losing his mind in there. You know, freaking out. And then the thought hits me. I'm going to die <laughs> from a fly in my ear. My son is going to have to explain this to his friends for the rest of his life. How'd your dad die? Oh, a fly flew in his ear. The most pansy ever way to die. You know, that's how my dad died. How about yours? War. Oh, cool. You know, 
my dad fly in the air, took him right out. You know, I'm thinking, this thing is going to get into my brain. It's, this is what's going into my head right now. That's what's happening. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, first it's, I'm going to, I'm going to, my whole time camping is going to be ruined by this stupid fly. And then the second thought is, I'm dying here in this bathroom, in the campground, because the fly is going to eat my brain. And so I'm shaking my ear, and all of a sudden I'm like, I start praying. And, you know, I was like, no, in Jesus' name, fly, come out of my ear right now. And so I start shaking, and you know, I, I shook a hundred times already, but this particular shake, right after the prayer, whoom, the fly falls out on the ground, and ah, I crushed him immediately. And I took a picture of him. It was cool. And so, you know, irrational fears, I mean, it was amazing how quickly this panic started to get into my soul. You know, how quickly this fear started to get into my soul, and I know you've experienced probably not the same attack of the flies, but some level of panic or fear that snuck into your soul. Have you ever been possessed by, you don't raise your hand for this one, possessed by jealousy or maybe watch someone who's been possessed by jealousy, you know, and their relationship is going sour and it's getting difficult to trust. And now all of a sudden, every time he's around her, he's like, where are you going? What'd you do? Can I go on your Facebook? Can I, can I look at your phone? Who'd you text? And this, this breakdown starts to happen because, well, I don't trust you. I don't know what's going on. Are you, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? Have you ever been wronged by someone and that wrong plays in your head again and again and again and again and again. And you're sitting in the car by yourself and you're, there's steam coming out of your ears and you're angry about something that happened two weeks ago. Because you're replaying it in your mind. And you're saying, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they're acting that way. And it's playing and replaying and you're getting more and more angry, husband, wife. You're getting more and more frustrated because you're replaying it. Have you ever been so upset? Have you ever just woken up upset? Some of you every day. And, and someone asks you, you're kind of huffy, and someone asks, this happened the other day, and they ask you, what's wrong with you? And it stops you, and you're like, I don't even know. I have no idea what's wrong with me. Has that ever happened to you before? I don't know. I'm just kind of huffy today. I'm not sure. You know, there wasn't enough something in my coffee, even though I don't drink coffee. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. And it kind of stops you. You know, when I was a little kid, we lived at 14 Barton Circle in North Haven, Connecticut. And in my backyard, there was this big woods. There was this little, little lake, little river, little stream, really. And so, you know, you could follow the stream through the woods. And if you got to the particular part of the stream, there was this opening, this tunnel. We called it the tunnel. And so um, it was this, this, this pretty large opening, you know, like enough for a kid to fit in. And so we would go in the tunnel. It was pretty awesome. And there was always these rumors from the neighborhood kids that there's like, you know, man-eating rats in the tunnel and stuff. But we were like, who cares? Let's go through the tunnel. And so we would go in the tunnel and the tunnel would actually come out two streets over on Apple Tree Lane. It was awesome. And so we'd get out of the tunnel on the other side and we'd be like, whoa. And I had a friend, Billy, who lived on Apple Tree Lane. So it was like a secret passageway underneath the surface to get to Apple tree lane and I can't tell you how appealing it was for a young boy to be able to see what was under the surface I think this is why Ninja Turtles were so famous right because they were under the surface of course it never dawned on me like hey they're like living where the poop goes like you know in the sewer that's kind of a disadvantage to the whole process but for me it was like no sewer cool under the surface in fact just the other day my neighbor nick who's probably in the room you know took up the manhole cover in the middle of the street which i don't think you're supposed to do nick and and i was of course with him and endorsing it and we're both like let's just see what's down there it's a ladder i mean we have ladders in our garage but this is an amazing ladder i mean this is an underground ladder where does it go it just goes nowhere but it's awesome I mean, it's just cool to see what's under the surface. There's something inside of us that wants to know what's going on down there. 
And in the same regard in the physical, there's also that reality in the mental that psychologists for a long time have been trying to figure out the language of the soul and what's going on under the surface that's causing all these storms. All these storms that are raging are very often not connected to anything in the natural, but instead connected to something deeper in the spiritual. The other day I was reading Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the 1800s, and he said this, follow these words, A garrison is not free from danger until, uh, while it hath an enemy lodged within. You may bolt all your doors and fasten all your windows, but if the thieves have placed even a little child within the doors who can draw the bolts for them, The house is still unprotected. All the sea outside a ship cannot do it damage until the waters enters within and fills the hold. Hence, it is clear, our greatest danger is from within. All the devils in hell and tempters on earth could do us no injury if there were no corruption in our nature. Alas, our heart is our greatest enemy. This is the little home-born thief. And when I read Psalm 27, I read about David, who's worried that people are lying about him. Did you pick up on that when I read it? That people were trying to kill him. You ever had that happen to you? That could cause some anxiety. Hey, there's people trying to kill me. You know, that's, that, that would cause me to be mildly anxious, you know. And it gets so bad that even mom and dad, according to Psalm 27, are like, uh, we don't know him. They're forsaking him. They're pretending like they don't know David. They're like, oh, you know, um, well, uh, don't call, son, you know. And so his response to this situation This storm of the soul. His response is to write a song. I'm going to write a song. And interestingly enough, as you read the song that he wrote, this Psalm 27, you find that it is packed with these bold declarations. If you have a Bible, just look at it. He starts with, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Interesting. He doesn't say, the Lord gives me light or the Lord provides for me salvation. Very important truth about God. He doesn't say that God brings us these things. Instead, he says, God is these things. God, you are my light. God, you are my salvation. He declares these things. He doesn't provide a refuge. Interestingly enough, God is the refuge. That's a huge difference. He is the refuge. And then in verse 3, he says, my heart shall not fear. Now, I can imagine that he was experiencing some fear as he was writing this song. He's giving a pep talk for his own soul. My heart shall not fear. And then he says, I will be confident. In verse 5, he says, he, God, will hide me in his shelter. He will lift me up high on a rock. Listen to all these bold declarations. And then he says, the Lord will take me in. Mom and dad have forsaken me, but God will take me in. He declares it over his life. In bold declaration. And then he kind of wraps it all up in verse 13 with this big declaration. Look at it on the screen. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. His voice probably didn't break like that. He was more of a warrior. So it was like, I believe, not goodness of the Lord like I did. But the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. These declarations. And so we see David in the middle, follow this, in the middle of the storm, Declaring these things, singing these songs while anxiety is, you know, trying to suffocate him. And I know that in this room right now at Co-op High School at 1016, there is someone sitting here that you're exactly there. That that anxiety is beginning to suffocate you. That that storm of the soul is raging all around you. And you're trying to grab onto something stable and something consistent. It's probably time to make some bold declarations. 
it's probably time to use your lips, the lips that God gave you, this great gift of communication that he only gave to this extent to the human race. Begin to use those words to declare the goodness of God over your life. I believe that God will provide. I believe that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He starts declaring these truths over himself. Don't you realize that when you start to speak this stuff over your life, something starts to change? Have you ever sat in your room by yourself and given yourself a Holy Spirit pep talk? Probably time to do it. Well, where do I start? Psalm 27 is a good place. Begin to declare the things that, 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 uh, that David declared over himself. Begin to say, listen, no, the Lord is my light. He lets me see. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? My heart does not need to be afraid. He declares these things, declares these things, declares these things. Friends, as a community, we have to get good at declaring the truths of God in the midst of the storm. We have to. We have to. But he doesn't just stop with the declarations. He also moves into behaviors, right? He moves into behaviors. So in verse 4, he says, One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek. And he says, I'm going to dwell in your house. I'm going to focus on you, God. I'm going to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. He may not feel joyful, but he's going to do it. I'm going to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'm going to shout. I love you, God. I don't feel like I'm in love. You're awesome. I don't feel like you're awesome. You're going to protect me, even though there's somebody trying to kill me. He was declaring these things over himself and doing it actively. And then he says in verse 6, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. Well, what's he doing? He's believing that truth can redirect emotion. He's believing that truth can redirect emotion. You know, um, recently... uh, I went through a really, to unpack it would take a couple hours, but about two weeks of intense spiritual attack. Something beyond what I've experienced personally. All types of different craziness going on in my personal life, uh, mostly physically and mentally and then spiritually. And experiencing this attack, there was this storm. And so um, I went to Psalm 27. And I felt like God just wanted me to share it with you because I've been meditating on it, the truth that are, that are, that's are, the truths that are in it. And I've been speaking over myself these truths. And I've been declaring them with my lips. And I've been practicing the one thing. To seek your face. To dwell in your house. To hang out there. And I was talking with my friend Chad. I don't know if Chad's here this morning or maybe his second service. But I was talking with my friend Chad about the storms of the soul. And he said, Justin, you know, great, there's a great painting that really captures this. It's a, uh, it's a Rembrandt called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And so I pulled it up on my iPhone. I looked at it. And it was a little too small to really appreciate the beauty of a Rembrandt. So I pulled it up on my computer later and looked at it again. I wanted to show it to you guys today. Let's throw up The, uh, the Storm of the Soul. Uh, you can, I know you can get kind of a decent look at it. I know it's, it's, uh, it's on a screen and so it doesn't really do it full justice. But, you know, you see this picture. And as soon as I saw it, you know, it just caught my attention. There was something about this this particular painting that just kind of grabbed my attention. And you can look it up on your own and kind of zoom in and get the specifics of it. But I realized that obviously the storm's pretty intense. You know, obviously the storm is picking the boat up. And some of the guys on the top there are sort of striving and trying to get things in order and trying to fix things. But then if you notice at the bottom, that's Jesus right there. And he seems pretty calm. He's just hanging out. And there are a few disciples who decided, you know what? I'm not going to go with trying to stop a storm. Instead, I'm going to go with trying to keep my eyes on Jesus. And so it's interesting that, you know, that he paints this because this is from the, the Gospel of Mark where uh, Jesus eventually stands up and says, stop it. And the whole storm stops. But it's interesting to me that Rembrandt decides not to paint it after it's stopped but, or even when Jesus is declaring it to stop, but to paint it before that moment 
the moment right before Jesus stands up, the moment of panic and terror and insecurity and uncertainty, this is the moment that Rembrandt decides to catch with this snapshot in this, photo, in this, uh, in this painting. And it's, you know, it's amazing that Jesus is so perfectly calm. And so I started looking at this painting a little more, and um, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples, right? Jesus had 12 disciples. Right. Okay, just make sure you knew that. Jesus had 12 disciples, okay? There's 13 disciples in the boat. And I thought, come on, Rembrandt, really? You counted wrong? I mean, one of the most famous paintings like in, ever in human history, you counted wrong. And so he put 13 disciples, 14 total, with Jesus in the boat. And there's one guy in this boat. You can't really see him too well in this picture because of the fuzziness in the sides. But there's one guy in this boat that does not look anything like a Galilean fisherman. He doesn't look like a Galilean fisherman. He looks like a European, you know, um, painter. And, uh, you know, scholars and historians agree that, the, the majority of them agree that, that Rembrandt actually painted himself in the painting. He painted himself in the painting. And so, you know, first it's like, well, why would he do that? That's kind of arrogant, right? I mean, you're not a disciple of Jesus like one of the 12. I mean, come on, Rembrandt, that's a little bit proud. Or, or maybe it was just, a, you know, a, a blown up case of where's Waldo? And, you know, we're going you know, to stick myself in there. And where's Rembrandt? And he's got the pink hat on and, you know, and the whole deal. But I don't think that's at all what was going on here. Um, my conviction is that maybe Rembrandt was going through a storm himself. And maybe one of his ways of dealing with that storm was to artistically express it to God, just like David wrote the song when he was going through the storm. And he began to interact with God through his song, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And he began to interact with God through this song in the same way as Rembrandt is painting this painting of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's painting himself right in it saying, God, you know, I'm going through a storm, but I'm in the midst of the storm going to keep my focus on you, Jesus, realizing that, you know, if I'm with you, it's going to be okay. Now, in the actual account of this, you know, storm what we find is that jesus stands up he rebukes the wind and the waves and then he turns around to his disciples and he says why are you so afraid and they're all like um because we were gonna die right there's kind of a natural this is why but he expected them to be confident follow this he expected them to be confident before the miracle took place not because of what i see but because follow this of who i'm with I want to suggest to you today that life is a lot less about a calm ride and a lot more about who is with you in the boat. That there's a peace that you and I can operate in when we realize that chaos surrounds us, but there's a nearness to Jesus that we can hold on to. Look at Psalm 27, verse 14. Look how the psalm ends. As David sings to God. Now I don't know if he was talking to those who would read his psalm. Or if he was talking to himself. I'd like to think he was talking to himself. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That word wait is the Hebrew word kava. Wait for the Lord. Kava. 29 times in the Old Testament it's translated wait. But 13 times in the Old Testament it's translated look. And it has this idea of hopeful seeing. See him. Look to him. 
Keep your eyes stayed on him. Wait for him. Look to him. It's the same word that we find in Isaiah chapter 40 when he says, those who look or those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. In other words, there's a supernatural strength that fills your soul. Hear this because you need it today. There's a supernatural strength that fills your soul when you learn to look to him, when you learn to look upon him, when you learn to wait on him, when life is not about asking him to fix your storms, but life is far more about keeping your eyes stayed on him in the middle of the storm while you're sitting in the boat. Look to him, wait for him, keep your eyes stayed on him. If you do that, you'll renew your strength, your walk, and you'll not be weary. You'll run and you won't faint. There's a divine release of power and David understood it and I believe Rembrandt understood it when you just stay with him. When you just stay on him. When you just stay near him. And I would suggest to you today that much of our problems manifest in our lives because you forget that he's with you. Because you forget that he's near you. What was David looking at? When he said look to the Lord, wait for the Lord. What was David looking at? What was he hoping in? Well, you got to remember, David was a prophet. David was a prophet. And these aren't just poems. They're prophecies. See, I believe, I'm convinced that David saw the day when one would come, Emmanuel, God with us. And that Emmanuel would remove the sin for all time that separated God from people. And that sin completely removed would allow the perfect righteousness of Emmanuel to be imputed to me. That means that Justin is blameless before God from the day I was born to the day I die. No separation. This is what caused the Apostle Paul to exclaim, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he finishes the thought with, nothing can separate us. See, I'm convinced that the psalmist knew the secret to quiet the storms of the soul. The psalmist knew the secret to quiet the storms of the soul. And so he decides to sing it. He decides to declare it. He decides to shout it. In fact, I would suggest to you that the entire Psalm 27, all 14 verses, could be summed up in four words. He is with me. He is with me. He is with me. He's with me. You know, maybe the entire Christian walk could be summed up in those four words. He's with me. He's with me. He's with me. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about Moses, who is a man of faith. It says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He's with me. Somehow, that simple truth slips out of our perspective right in the middle of the storm. He's with me. He's with me. He's with me. Jesus knew that this was a pretty big deal. So he decides to use his very last words with his disciples to underscore this truth. He says to them, and he's saying it to you today, Behold. What does the word behold mean? It means to look. Behold, look at this. Look, see this today. Behold. Jesus says it like this. Last words he ever said to his disciples. Behold, I am with you always. That word I am, it's the Greek translation of the name of God. The I am. Ego I me. I am. That's what he said. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. 
all those times he used that phrase, he uses it here at the very end. As he's ascending into heaven, he looks at them and he says, God, ego on me, the I am, behold, behold, see it, look at this. Behold, I am with you always, always, always. Behold, I am with you always. Close your eyes just for a second. Go ahead, close your eyes. Close your eyes. You're all busy. We all got things to do. It's Father's Day. Go out to eat. Have fun. I don't know what's going on in your life today. Pause for a second. Just pause for a second. Personally. Don't worry about the person next to you. Your spouse. Don't worry about them right now. Right now. Right now. Pause. I want the Lord to unwrap this present for you in your own soul. I want the Lord to articulate this to you in a song today. He's whispering it to your soul right now with your eyes closed. He's whispering it in a way that only he can whisper it. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. Why do you keep thinking that I'm going to leave you? I know what you've done. I'm not going anywhere. I am with you always. Behold. Let the Lord unwrap it today in your own soul. Let the Lord unpack it in your own mind right now. Keep your eyes closed just for another few seconds here. Keep them closed and just allow God to speak this to you in a way that he can speak it only. Come Holy Spirit right now. Come Holy Spirit. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.